The topic of interest uh, that the professor is going to address this afternoon is the uh, origin of interest. Thank you. <clears throat> Back to the time of Amanda, this is Increases because 
and this really matters only in the case of the precious metals. The reason is that you need precision equipment and special processes to isolate small quantities and verify the quality and so on, and this is a greater cost. But the bid price outside of the commercial range also shows the same behavior, whether it's for higher or for very high quantities or very small quantities. And that's the picture we have. And accordingly, according to this behavior, we are distinguishing between two types of marketability. The marketability is a term which is used to Langer himself. The German word Ansatzfähigkeit. This is marketability. Langer did not distinguish between marketability in the large and marketability in the small, but from the context it's clear that what he had in mind was marketability in the large. And we are developing the parallel theory for marketability in the small. So another word for marketability in the large is liquidity or saleability, and another term for marketability in the small is hoardability, from the word to hoard. And the opposite, which is very often not in the dictionary, dishoard. What you see hoarding and dishoarding are going hand in hand. You hoard not for its own sake, you hoard because later on you want to discuss. This is something we have covered, so let me just give you a sketch of Manger's original contribution, which is the theory of marketability in the large. liquidity or saleability. How does this lead to the theory of that? Well, before Mender, there was a puzzle for economists to solve that some of the goods which in practice were treated as extremely valuable were in fact not even necessary. How was it that water, for example, which is absolutely necessary for survival, is a free good, or air is a free good? And they are both absolutely necessary for survival of the human being. Uh, and gold and silver are not absolutely necessary, and they not only are not free good, but they are extremely valuable. <laughs> So this was a contradiction, and they, actually centuries went by, and uh, people were 
discussing this paradox called the paradox of value for a long time without uh, without um, being able to resolve. Mander wasn't the only one, but this is called the marginal school. About the same time, another economist, as it turned out, he was a Swiss, uh, Valdas, developed a similar theory, and of the English economist Jevons. Uh, but I'm not going to uh, do anything but just mention the names. Uh, Manger was the one who gave a complete theory, which was a ground theory. He explained the, the uh, concept of value in a way which is still valid today, even though the theory itself is well over a hundred years old. And this is the uh, marginal utility, the concept of marginal utility. Menger argued that the same individual values a good according to the quantity he already possesses. The first unit of that commodity which he acquires, he values very highly. The second one, he still values highly, but not as highly. And as more and more units of the same are acquired, the value is declining. To him, value and utility in this context are synonyms. You can treat them as being having the same meaning. So. Uh, an example would be take a farmer somewhere in the rainforest of uh, Brazil, isolated farmer, and he brings in a harvest of grain. And he has several sacks. By the way, markets are not necessary for understanding the value of the concept of value or the concept of marginal utility. Uh, because as in this example, it's an isolated farmer. Um, for the sake of argument, we shall assume he brings in five sacks of grain and he earmarks the first uh, sack to provide food for himself and his family for the next year. That's the highest priority he has. Survive, without survival, he may have no other uh, goals to pursue. The second sack he puts aside as seed grain to plant the next harvest, which is also very important if he uh, has survived, then he has to provide for the next year. And that means you have to plant and grow. Okay, so that's the second 
sack. The third sack he may use for for making whiskey, for the sake of argument. This is not absolutely necessary, but it's helpful, and whiskey is, is good for companionship, etc. Et and uh, did I say five seconds? Well, let, let's stop short with four seconds. I mean, you can see that you can invent. These are the decreasingly important applications of the same, very same commodity. And and uh, uh, the fourth sack he earmarks for bird feed. He enjoys, that's his only television in the rainforest uh, entertainment. He attracts the birds by throwing seed and they come. And that's his enjoyment. Well, he watches him when he's drunk, obviously. Sees his doubles, yeah. <laughs> so there you have this fact that it's a mistake to say that to the same individual, the same commodity always commands the same value. Well, it's not. If he can have more units, then he will put different values on different units. And in other, saying it a different way, you say the utility of different bags, although it's the same commodity, but will be different according to the applications he uh, puts them to. Now, so far there's no market, it's just an isolated farmer. But now you can uh, think of uh, several. Farmers who get together in the market and exchange goods, and uh, a kind of price, even without money, there will be a kind of price uh, because the price is just a ratio value put on one commodity and another one. And for example, if you take corn and wheat, you might say two sacks of corn will exchange for one sack of wheat, then this two to one ratio is a price. No money, only barter, but uh, price, uh, something that approximates our concept of the price already exists. So then the, uh, the question is, what will determine that price, this ratio, two to one? And the answer is, it's the marginal utility. Utility declines, but there will be vertical red line separating the sub-marginal and the, uh, uh, the applications and the important applications. And uh, that there are several participants in the market, and they will arrive at a ratio approximately 2 to 1, and that will be the price. So, uh, in other words, Menger had a theory of value which was based on the concept of marginal utility. But it didn't stop there. Menger wrote a paper, actually he wrote it in English, or it was first published in English, probably somebody else translated it 
for him because at the end of the 19th century, the English language was not yet the common language of scientists. And German was a very important language, but uh, this was for, it's a fact that this particular paper was first published in English, and the title of the paper is The Origin of Money. It's not a long paper, it's probably a dozen pages, and very clearly written, very convincing. It's, it's really a masterpiece. And uh, uh, many years ago, in the uh, 1980s, late 1970s, I was editing a series of pamphlets published by the Committee for monetary research and education, and I republished this in the series, uh, among other papers. It's really a gem, very, very beautiful paper. And that's what he does in that paper. And that's what we are going to imitate here in developing the theory of the origin of interest. But basically, Menger had to explain the origin of money, which means that from the barter economy there was an exchange, a transition into the exchange economy. And that took place as the market started sorting out commodities according to liquidity or saleability. So this picture applies to one commodity. And you can put a number on this commodity saying that its marketability is such and such. Let's assume it's from 1 to 10. And um, what you have to look at is how this spread between the ask and bid price behaves. But ignore the left half of the chart because we are talking about strictly marketability in the large here. And you can guess that it's on the other question, origin of interest, where we'll be interested in marketability in the small. But here is marketability in the large. So we will say that a commodity has greater, say commodity A has greater marketability than commodity B if its spread behaves in what way? Could you finish my sentence? So we are talking about A now, which is more marketable than B. If but it's spread. the spread does what? Stays smaller. Uh, increases at a smaller rate. Because if you, you take the spectrum, okay? the behavior, the spread behaves in a certain way. It gets larger, 
we agree, because this picture applies to all commodities. What is di different from one commodity to the other is the rate of change. You might say first derivative is mathematician. So, uh, marketability is greater in the large, saleability or liquidity is greater, provided that the spread increases at a smaller rate. So that is something which every market participant will discover for himself. Because, for instance, uh, perishable goods, the spread will get very large very quickly. And the uh, less perishable goods will be more marketable. And th th there are many other influences on the behavior of the spread, but that is not really the important issue. The important issue is that once you attach a number, the marketability in the large, to every commodity, then you will be able once more to set up a scheme similar to what we did the previous hour. You know, the organ pipes and rank all commodities according to their marketability in the large. And which angle of the spectrum is interesting for us? There will be large marketability or liquidity or saleability and small. We are interested in looking at those commodities which are the, whose marketability is the highest, which means the spread increases uh, more slowly than the spread of any other. Okay. So the name of the game is find the most marketable good, which is most marketable in the large, the most liquid. Saleable. Why is this important for market participants? Well, this has to do with the barter situation, and you just have to put yourself into that. That you go to the market with your services, you produce a certain try to sell it, and you commodity A, and you want to. That's what you want to sell, and you want to buy commodity B. Now you've got to find the guy who has a surplus of B. And that's very cumbersome, very difficult, um, the nature of the case. So you might find a compromise. You say, okay, I'm selling my A for the most marketable good, because if I want to make a second exchange, it will be much easier for me to go to B because it's not necessarily true that those who want A have a surplus of B. So you just have to improve your, uh, your chance of making the particular type of trade or barter you want. So, the market participants will very soon come to the realization 
that we have to find the most marketable good and quickly make an exchange of our surplus for that one, call it X. So I'm exchanging my A, surplus of A, for X, and then go around and find a surplus of B and offer not A to him in exchange for B, which I want, but offer X. And this is uh, the way to do it, and this is the way which works, and this is what people found out, and this is what started a process, kind of snowballing effect, that the demand for X snowballed, it become, became greater and greater. Why? Not because people needed X for its own sake but because X was ex more exchangeable than yeah. anything else. So that is the, uh, the uh, line of uh, argument of Mandir, how the precious metal, well, of course he talks about intermediate uh, money, such as cattle and wheat and salt and what have you, but ultimately this boiled down to the precious metals, gold and silver, which became the most marketable uh, in the large, and that is what became money, because the ex it facilitated exchange, exchanging surplus uh, for, for something which you have a deficit, uh, and, and uh, using the intermediary money, uh, it was made possible and facilitated very Now the word is barter is one word, but it has a substitute which is called direct exchange. And uh, when money is present, then you call that indirect exchange because this was one transaction, barter, direct exchange. But then you break it down, you first sell and then you buy, but the purpose is the same, the result is the same, but it's a much more efficient way of getting what you want. So that is known as indirect exchange. So in this case we have the barter economy and here we have the monetary economy. And, uh, we describe this process, we don't know, this is prehistoric times, there's no written record of it, how this happened, this was just reconstructed by uh, theoreticians such as Langer, and uh, it's very difficult to argue I think. Uh, we have a process here which could have taken 
not just hundreds of years ago, perhaps millennia. We don't know. We can guess, but we don't know. And this is a process, and this is passing from direct to indirect exchange. It's a historical process, economic process. And this is how uh, money originated. Now, of course, not everybody accepted this. There were others said, no, 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 money came into being because there was a government. And government declared that this is, has value because the king's uh, effigy is uh, stamped on it and the government says it's worth so much. And people uh, accept it as such. And that, well, that's just to mention you another name. A German economist, contemporary of Menger, by the name Knapp. And he had what he called the state theory of money. And uh, I have only contempt for that theory, although a lot of people take it seriously, even today. All those people in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> So this is the picture, the origin of money, uh, described as a passage from direct exchange to indirect exchange, but it involves a lot of ideas, which we have mentioned, marketability in the life, liquidity, and uh, spread, the behavior spread over the range of uh, quantity, which is usually exchanged in market sense. And then there are a few side problems too, which are solved in the process. And I'm just referring you to something which we already discussed. That property, uh, the uh, most marketable good in the large, facilitates the transfer of value in space. Cattle was another one before the precious metals. And why was it uh, important uh, uh, commodity? Because cattle was self-propelling. You, uh, you could take your herd of cattle and drive them, and that's what actually did. Nomadic people were moving. Once the, the grazing land was uh, exhausted, they could just drive their herd to greener pastures and then but not only then, but if they wanted to buy something, uh, any other form of value transfer would have cost them. But the cattle were self-propelling and they could feed themselves on the way. So the transfer of value space was virtually costless and this was a very great advantage. And that's also part of the story. So, you know, there, there's a lot of issues involved, but we are really 
our interest in this story is already cut out for us. What we want to do is we want to imitate what Manger did in asking the question, what's the best way of transferring value in time? Now, space and time are two uh, categories of human thought which uh, have been with us ever since people were doing philosophy, they tried to figure things out in the abstract. So, uh, it's not surprising that two kinds of money have evolved in history, historically. One is which facilitates transfer of value over space, but that's only half a loaf, and the other half of the loaf is the problem how to transfer value over time most efficiently. So, uh, while cattle did fill the first bill perfectly for the ancient world, uh, I think salt, you could think of others, like wheat as, as well, but let's just fix our ideas. We'll say that salt was the other commodity which was necessary because although when it came to transferring value in space, capital was doing very well, salt wouldn't because you have these stories of Esau, fables of Esau, donkeys carrying a sack of salt and had to cross the river and the donkey purposely submerged in the water and then when he came out he had to have a much greater load on his back and so on. I'm just mentioning this for the entertainment value of the idea. Salt is not a good commodity to transfer value over space. However, it's an excellent, the most excellent commodity to transfer value over time. Mainly because these were, of course, days of pre-refrigeration. Uh, salt was an agent of food preservation. And that was a great problem. You have to carry food above, uh, above all from summer to winter or even several years and you had to make sure that the quality of food would not deteriorate. Salt was one of the most important agents of food preservation so you could carry value over time and then people realized that it didn't really have to do with food uh, or eating because if we, even if you just you were a wealthy man and you had sons and daughters and you wanted to leave value to them after you were gone, uh, salt did the fill the bill, transfer value from one generation to the next. So much so that in the Roman Empire salt was really money and the word soldier and salary, these 
uh, English words were derived from the Latin, Latin word sal, which is soft. So, there is a parallel theory, this is only half loop, we have to look at the other half. Now, I already suggested, but not right now, the question arises the origin of interest. Can we imitate the reasoning of Menger and come up with an acceptable... But remember, this is not something that archaeology would help you to uncover or uh, history, written history, certainly not, because this goes way back before uh, written history started. And, uh, and uh, the cattle, which actually served as money, were mortal, they died, and of course, even if you found the bones today, it wouldn't help you. Uh, so, in other words, this is a speculative theory. This is something which has to be abstract by its own nature, because uh, it goes back beyond um, whatever you could discover through um, experimental science or gathering evidence, archaeology, whatever. And the same is true here. I, I cannot offer any concrete evidence like Menger proved. The same, pretty well the same thing here. You just have to use your own logic, your own intelligence, and see that this is the most likely way it happened. So, uh, we go back to our chart, which I used in the first lecture in the series, and now we are considering this left panel. And this is marketability in the small, which we identify by calling it hoardability. There's a need, a human need, to hoard uh, certain hoardable commodities because that's the way you can transfer value in time. And then the same question arises, exactly the same, except for the signature, the signature. What? When will you say that commodity A is more hoardable than commodity B? And the answer is, is exactly the same, it's just the signature is different. You say that A is more hoardable if the spread increases more slowly for A than it increases for B. And then you add, you are interested in changing spread as the quantity gets smaller and smaller. So I don't think I have to explain this uh, again, but this is a reasonable uh, start. 
we look at marketability in the small. Which is affordability and here it was uh, saleability and here, uh, here we did rank, remember, we did rank commodities according, according to their saleability and look for the most saleable one. And that became money. Uh, is that the same here? We rank commodities by affordability. Here we rank them several. And then you have those organ types. Have them here too. So <coughs> pick the most affordable commodity. And uh, as I already mentioned in the ancient world, this could have been wheat or salt, but in the modern age it became it became uh, a precious metal in particular. Uh, I'm not going to write this down because this is subject to a slight modification, but it was silver. This was gold here, and this is perhaps I should write this up. So the market arrived at gold, and here the market arrived at silver. Now, why am I saying that silver is more affordable than gold? Well, that's a little uh, technological argument. As you try to get smaller and smaller and smaller uh, quantities, which are still exchangeable and tradable, then uh, very soon gold will be so small that uh, you can hardly see it, and you need. Uh, special instruments to weigh it or assay it or establish quality, quantity, what have you. Whereas silver, which because, precisely because it's less valuable, the specific value of silver is smaller, that made it more affordable. Because a very small value, uh, value could still be represented by a a reasonable chunk of silver. Whereas for gold it would be already too, too small for practical purposes. You could lose it. Just think, think up your own arguments why gold is not suitable uh, when you are looking for the most hoardable good. Silver is superior. And there's another thing. And this other thing is that you, and this is metallurgy, you, uh, if, if there's a very small quantity of gold, in order to analyze this, you would have to have 
much more refined precision technologies or, or methods, which makes it more expensive. So if you just insisted that yes, I want gold, then you are incurring extra expenditure because uh, you are isolating quantities, molar quantities, molar, M-O-L-E-R, is the word in the English language which describes uh, studying material in very, very small quantities. <clears throat> so because of the extra expenditure uh, you uh, ha have the fact that the uh, marketability of gold in the small cannot beat the marketability of silver in the small. It does beat, the marketability of gold does beat that of silver in the large, there's no question about it, but when it comes to small, because of this problem, metallurgical problem, if you like. Now, of course, in the 19th and the 20th century, metallurgy made big advances, and the cost of uh, chemical analysis in the small became lower. So gold was doing a bit of catching up. And that's one thing. And the other thing is that society became more well-to-do. They could afford to pick a more valuable uh, unit and they were no longer interested in such very, very tiny quantities. So uh, you, you might agree with that, and uh, this could be demonstrated because we are no longer talking about prehistoric times, this was only yesteryear, so to speak, in the 20th century, late 19th century. Gold was, let's say, equally hoardable as silver, and so gold did catch up. And for historical reasons, it's important to remember this is how silver came into the picture. But gold monometallism, that's the word, uh, was gaining ground because of this technological improvement and so on. And gold is equally good as, a most, as the most hoardable uh, uh, commodity. So these are the two monetary metals which we have, and that's the, uh, the story behind. A very interesting, very fascinating story. If I was a film producer, I would certainly like to produce a film, whether animated or any other version, because you could make a very colorful, very convincing picture of these two uh, processes. The uh, uh, um, um, how marketability in the large brought about money, and marketability in the small brought about a dual money, which was even more useful when it came to transferring value in space. Now, where is where does interest come in? One thing is clear, because we have already talked about this quite a lot in the first couple of lectures, that 
affordability is important. Affordability of a good is important because uh, an individual, even an, ice, uh, an individual, even without money, if he wants to transfer value uh, in time, then the most interesting question for him is to pick the uh, the most hoardable material hoardability in the snow. So why would he want to do this? Well, we have been through that too because man is mortal and he knows it and he knows that with aging his surplus of energy and, uh, uh, will be declining, but his needs may be increasing due to health problems or anything else, or even just the fact that he has to protect his, his wealth. He, you know, a young man doesn't worry too much about being robbed because he feels strong enough to repel any attempt at plunder or but as you get older, you have to worry about that more and more because you are uh, more open to any kind of pilfering and plundering. I just mentioned this in a parenthesis. So there are these needs, and as somebody gets older, his needs get larger, and he has to worry about transferring or uh, converting. Uh, income into wealth so that when he will be pretty well helpless he can convert wealth back to income and hoarding and this hoarding would fill the bill and that has been happening and probably this went on for uh, hundreds or thousands of years uh, before anybody thought of the idea this is all very nice, but there is a big trouble here. Because if I, uh, for instance, I'm a young man and I want to go into business for himself, I need capital, and uh, this hoarding business and this hoarding is not going to help me because by the time I accumulate my capital, I'll be old and I won't have any inclination to start a business of my own. So uh, how can you beat that? This is a problem, a very real problem for at least at the time when people were using hoarding and dishoarding for that purpose. For one very important application, dishoarding and dishoarding didn't work very well. And that's when you try to accumulate capital because you were a young man, you wanted to go into business for yourself and then you found that you were running out of time. So that pro you, your problem was not solved uh, uh, by that great property of the most hoardable commodity uh, because of this time element. You, uh, there's a waiting period uh, before you could accumulate enough wealth and uh, uh, and that was uh, an obstruction to progress. 
people ready, excellent qualities, born businessmen, but they didn't have capital. And they tried to get capital through hoarding and this hoarding, and that didn't work because they ran, ran out of time. So society solved the problem. And it's exactly the same solution what Menger pointed out in the passage from direct exchange to indirect exchange. Could have been a long process, trial and error. Menger couldn't answer that, we can't answer it. But the human, in the ingenuity of the human mind must have led, left, led a lot of smart people, smarter than the average, to do this. And that evolution of the most marketable commodity in the large created money. Now, this is exactly the same what we are suggesting here. We are talking about direct conversion of income into wealth. And conversion in the other direction. And that's through hoarding and this hoarding. Which was a big step, no question. And people realized that they have to find the most marketable commodity in the small and use this for ordinance. This was a big help in the a big uh, step in the right direction. But it didn't solve the complete problem. So then a process started taking place. And what this involved is that they were, uh, some smart guy discovered that if I make an exchange, then I can cut this time element out of the picture, and let's call it indirect conversion. income into wealth and vice versa. So typically a young man has a surplus of income. He can generate greater income than he is able to consume. So he finds an older man with a surplus of wealth. But a deficit of income because he can no longer generate an income through his exertion because of the old age. So they find that their interests are mutual. If they make the exchange, then they both benefit, benefit by a great deal. And it's instantaneous, does not have this time dragged out takes time to hoard uh, 
silver or whatever, and then this more. But it can be telescoped into an immediate exchange. So we have this indirect conversion of income into wealth. Oh, I'm oblivious of that. But luckily, I have basically said most of what I wanted, and if you'd like to ask questions, I'll be happy to answer that. So, this is an exchange, but it's very important to realize that there has to be an incentive, because, and the incentive is interest, okay? Interest is the incentive. And you, you might say zero interest is just the direct conversion. But if you make an indirect conversion, you have to make, uh, you have to introduce an incentive. And that is exactly uh, what the interest does. It makes, it, it, if you like, it's a measure of the uh, greater efficiency of exchange. The word exchange has to figure somewhere here. <coughs> Exchanging income and wealth. Rather than converting through hoarding and discording, you make an immediate exchange. And uh, as I say, this takes time. And, but obviously, this is another huge step, the two big steps. This is one, this is two, and that is the importance of interest. That you can bring people together with matching needs and, and uh, incentives, and they make the exchange, and society as a whole benefits. Well, I wish I had more time, but uh, I'm just going to leave it there. What is striking is the, the parallel between the two. It's, it's almost picture perfect. It's exactly the same steps and so on. And, and uh, Menger's idea. I think if Menger had lived longer, then he, that I would be out of a job because <laughs> this would have been developed by him, but he died. So I'm trying to fill the gap, and this is what uh, I've tried to do. I will take questions. Later. Can, I, uh, can I put back the uh, chart of the uh, okay. uh, diagram? This is a simple. The simple question, but I did not understand it when you first put up. I think you gave an example of everything, uh, every part of this, and I maybe missed the. Uh, it makes sense to me that as you're, if, if you're the purchaser and you want a larger quantity of something, it makes sense that you would expect to get economies of scale, but the supplier would uh, be worried about replenishing his inventory, as you said, and demand a higher price. Yeah. And it also makes sense here that if the supplier is only selling one or two units of a given good, they would economies of scale again would dictate that they charge a higher price. Okay. But I don't understand why a purchaser would ever reasonably 
but surely a purchaser would say, well, I understand, I'm only buying one or two items, therefore I have to pay her. I think it's, it's, it's counterintuitive to me that you would expect a lower well, price. As long as this curve doesn't continue in this way, I'm all right, because even if you assume that this is stable, mm. the spread will increase. So let's not quibble about this. I, I thought of a number of factors which made it uh, reasonable to assume that this is false. But perhaps this was just due to the samples which I took and I forgot about looking at others. So whatever it is, certainly not going that way. And that's all I need. Because all I want to say is that this spread is also increasing as the quantity gets smaller. And the same here. I don't care if you make the straight line. I'm still all right with the theory. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But, but it might be an interesting question to investigate, right? But you have to go back in time just to think of what leads, what commodities they were looking at. Certainly, you're not looking at computers and hardware and software, this and that, and, and try to fit into the picture. I don't think this is a big problem. No. That's what grad school is for, Nathan. That's what grad school is for. <laughs> Answer those questions. Are there any more yes. questions? That, yeah, John? Um, am I correct on the same chart of thinking that on the other side, on that side, the marketability is greater if the bid ask spread increases at a smaller rate over quantity increases? Are you are talking about this chart? This chart here. On the right hand side of the chart, the, um, the marketability is greater if the spread increases at a smaller rate over quantity increases? Yeah. Now, is, yeah. The, is the opposite true on the other side? That marketability increases if the bid and ask spread increases at a smaller rate over well, let's, uh, let's uh, rephrase it a little bit. We are comparing two commodities. Question, which has greater marketability in terms of the spread? That's the question. And then you split it, marketability in large marketability in small. And in both cases, the answer is the commodity for which the spread increases at a slower rate is going to be more marketable. Whether it's going to the right or going to the left. I think this is a, a little better because you are reducing it to two, comparing two commodities. But once you can do that, then you have the spectrum because you can rank them according to marketability. So that's a, se a separate step. First you compare two. And once you can do that, and you can because of the spread, uh, then you can rank them. And then you have the organ pipes, and the argument is standard okay. in both cases. Any other questions? Uh, oh, yes. Sorry. Sorry. John, I'm here. Colin if I understand, developed the theory of money. Yes, the origin of money. That's the title of his paper. And if, if I understand well, then you developed the theory of interest. The origin. origin. Yeah, but that's the title. It's, it's all on your menu. It's the uh, origin of interest. So, um, with yours truly. 
I, I offer it to you for what it's worth. Then we can call spectatorism. Huh? Then we can call your theory spectatorism. Please, I won't argue with that. A model forbids that I uh, give it a name other than oh. theory. However, That's if you. <laughs> I, I think it's very convincing, especially if you have already accepted Mangers, which is fully developed, it, it's so perfect you can't change a uh, word in it, it's just perfect, picture perfect. And all I had to do is go step by step and change in the large to in the small. And that's all I did. And it, I looked at it and said, gee, that works. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And why didn't somebody else think of it before I did? They had to leave something. <laughs> okay. I don't recall Jeff Frieden or... Oh, you're thinking about it. No, they have their own questions. <laughs> Boy. Are there any questions? Nathan? Well, I guess just, uh, I'll hold my question, my other question, if, uh, if the lessons of bimetallism is going to be the next lecture, I'll hold it for that, but if you're leaving it out, if you're going to be uh, doing the gold bond instead at, uh, at uh, 3.30, uh, then I'll ask you now. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, uh, when you're talking about the gold and silver uh, being equally portable, once you could have molar quantities of gold in the, in the eight, after 1850 or so, let's say, um, that uh, now now people had a choice for which hoard, which monetary metal they used for hoarding. Uh, but does that automatically mean that um, silver, other things being equal, silver would gradually die out as a monetary metal, or does it mean that the two silver and gold would would exist side by side in the future if we if we ever go back to a monetary uh, a metal standard? Uh, would they exist side by side as, as the most portable quantity? Uh, uh, um, well, of course, gold is going to be superior because it, it is serving two purposes equally well. Silver fails to be to be marketable in the lot, so it's not you lose a little bit of symmetry. But I think we have to occasionally fall back and ask the question, well, in reality, what is happening? And, and we have to admit that uh, gold is equally hoardable as silver, and it has other qualities. So this is the senior monetary metal, and gold is the junior, and there's not much you can do about that. For investment purposes, I'm not arguing that silver may be a better uh, investment uh, metal and uh, it may be promising greater returns if you uh, play that. In fact, I am, uh, I have predicted that it's the last contango in Washington is to watch silver, not gold, because silver is going to give you uh, an advance warning, an early warning. Silver is the early warning system. Silver is the canary in the coal mine. When it really starts to, to, to pinch... Silver is the canary in the gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> this is what... 
fond of food. You write a paper on that. And... <laughs> Excellent. Why didn't I think of that? You got to sit next to you to think of it. I just have this proximity. That's beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, I think this is deserves a, a book should be written. On this. Okay. So uh, we have to admit that gold is the senior monetary metal, but silver has beautiful applications. We talked about this yesterday at the uh, uh, Charda where we had supper. That is, uh, I, I, I can't uh, rattle them off, but could you mention some of the fantastic uh, applications uh, of silver? Well, one of the best ones that I like is that um, superconducting um, materials that are being used to make some of the new electric motors for ships, especially military ships, um, the superconducting material is a ceramic, but it has a silver sheath. So as they develop these, these new motors, there's going to be a requirement, an industrial requirement for more and more silver. The other one that I really liked was that in optical switching and fiber optic systems, silver is a very important component of the mirrors that are used to direct the, the light in the fiber optic switching system. And superconductivity